Hello and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm in a series talking through a bit of mimetic theory, which is one of my favorite ways to look at the world. And this is episode three, or part three, I suppose, of that series. And what I've done is I've covered a little bit of of what mimetic theory starts with, the, the nature of desire and how that leads to rivalry. And in this episode, I want to take that that I or a few of those ideas and extend them and start to look at the realm of psychology. My focus here is on mimetic psychology. Traditionally, at least at the start, Girard saw mimetic theory as something that was other than psychology. It was not about inner motivations or the human psyche. But later thinkers, especially Girard's friend Jean-Michel Ugulian, started to think a little bit differently. They started to think, well, maybe mimetic theory has quite a bit to contribute to the way that we look at psychology. Various, though not all, theories of psychology do tend to isolate the individual from his or her world, especially in the realm of therapy. Often therapy is a quite an isolating thing. Very helpful, and I'm not going to diss that, but it's really important to, to notice that That is the trend, a trend towards embracing individuality as the only truth about the human subject. But there are exceptions to this. For example, interpersonal psychology, which look at the dynamics of interpersonal relationships. And then, of course, mimetic psychology, which is what we're talking about today. So if mimetic desire is the fundamental fact of human desire, then psychology definitely is going to benefit from the insights of mimetic theory. This is what Ugulian calls an interdividual psychology. The self becomes a filter of the desires of others. I think that's actually kind of a, a helpful way of understanding what is going on. The self is, is a kind of location, a locus, that, that filters the desires of others in order to have its own unique posture towards the world. So what an interdividual psychology does is it focuses on how not why people function. The how meaning it it wants to avoid actually scapegoating because actually, usually, when you pinpoint why people are so messed up, they easily look for people to blame. And and why this is significant in, in mimetic psychology is mimetic theory tries to avoid scapegoating, which is something that we, we're always doing. We're always, uh, as human beings, looking for a culprit someone who we can blame apart from ourselves. Girard begins with this basic idea, which I'm restating in different ways in in these episodes, but he, he says, a person cannot draw his desires from his own resources. He must borrow them from others. It's such a beautiful way of, of putting forward the basic notion of mimetic theory, which is that we can't, we don't have enough resources to create our own desires. We don't have this little machine that we can rely on that will create spontaneously just manufacture a desire. It must be borrowed from others. So you see this even in a simple gesture, a human gesture, which we call the handshake. What you have is you get two people who meet. One of them holds out his hand. The other one imitates him and holds out his hand. And now they're on friendly terms. And this is a positive imitation, a good reciprocity, and it shows that mimetic desire is even at play in something as simple as this. Of course, very, very rooted in a, a basic neurocognitive function, which is the, the existence of mirror neurons. 
Archaeological ruins and ancient texts show that handshaking was practiced in, practiced in ancient Greece as far back as the 5th century BC. It's a really old thing. And the handshake is thought by some to have originated as a gesture of peace by demonstrating that the hand holds no weapon. But the hand, this action of handshaking actually gains a kind of a little bit more of a sinister uh, meaning when you look at the film Contagion, which was released in 2011. What you have there is a virus. The, well, one of the explanations for the spreading of viruses is, of course, through touch. A uh, dominant way that we communicate with each other is through, is through touch. But the idea of germs spreading through this kind of uh, shared reciprocity is actually very appropriate for mimetic theory. We share desires in the same way. You have positive reciprocity, two people holding out hands and shaking the other person's hand, but you also get negative reciprocity, where someone takes out a gun and the other one takes out a gun and they shoot each other, which is something you see in in Western movies, you know, the the draw, the duel. That would be a negative reciprocity, but it's still a mirror image and it's fairly arbitrary in terms of like something like justice. So what we what we find is that desire, this reciprocity, this desire is most potent as something that is called metaphysical desire. This is actually the desire to possess the very being of another person. Other desires can be understood as as being aspects of this desire, which is really a desire to exist in greater measure. When when we see someone who wants something, we look at them and we may think, oh, wow, they have everything together. They're, they have the life I want to live. That's actually a metaphysical desire, a desire to to exist in greater measure. Metaphysical desire at its most potent casts the other as a rival, something we spoke about in the previous episode. And at its strongest, metaphysical desire sees the rival as someone that should be replaced. It highlights the fact that rivalry is central to understanding how desire functions. So this is what Agulian writes in his book, The Mimetic Brain. He says, desire is always in variable proportions a cocktail of complicity, which means collaboration, attraction, affection, and love on the one hand, and of rivalry, repulsion, and aggression on the other, and the latter can reach extremes of hatred and violence. So there are these two things, opposites, good reciprocity, attraction, affection, love, but also negative reciprocity, repulsion, aggression, etc. And these rest on the same foundation, which is the fact that desire is mimetic. So rivalry is often unconsciously something that is perpetuated over a matter of who has the so-called authentic right to an object of desire. What is really bizarre about mimetic desire, and I think it's one of the reasons why it took so long for for humanity to notice it so explicitly as Gerard has done, is the fact that we do tend to feel our desires as authentic, as things we own. And so we don't really notice that they're copied. It's almost as if we, we forget that we've actually borrowed our desires. But obviously, the idea that someone would have an authentic desire in mimetic theory is actually bizarre. It's a mistake. There is no authentic desire. So Ugulion writes that at each moment, the state of the self is constructed from the ground up. 
It is an evanescent reference state, so continuously and consistently reconstructed that the owner never knows it is being remade unless something goes wrong in the remaking. I love the way that he describes the self here. It is an evanescent reference state. If anyone asks you, what is the self? You just say, well, it's an evanescent reference state. I think that pretty much covers it. He he then carries on, Uguglion carries on. He says, the self is saturated with otherness, which is also just such a beautiful idea. The self is saturated with otherness. The self will be perpetually reshaped, made up of a patchwork of all selves formed in the course of its history. Ugulion then carries on later on in, in his book, The Mimetic Brain. He says, if interdividuality determines the psychological and psychopathological destiny of human beings, those human beings nonetheless enter into mimetic relationship with a particular history and structure. I think this is so important. So I know one of the things that one of the things that a lot of my students find alarming about mimetic theory is this the sense of sort of negate, negating authenticity. But what Ugulian does point out is that we do still enter into mimetic relationship with a particular history, a, a set of experiences, and a particular structure. So he's talking about nurture and nature, basically. Both of these play a part, and that the precise way that nurture and nature play with each other and work together is still going to create a unique self. And what he's really getting at here is that that different people respond differently to different mimetic inputs. So we are still ourselves. It's not that we are only alienated from ourselves or whatever it is, but we're, we're filters for the world around us. When we filter the world in a very unique and particular way but we are nonetheless all prone to mimetic desire and what i've seen is that some people are actually more prone to negative forms of imitation than others this is a really interesting thing to me and i don't think it's been completely solved in mimetic theory i've actually written a bit about how positive reciprocity develops it's something that mimetic theorists are still trying to grapple with so uh, if you look at the Contagion Journal, uh, search uh, title Subversive Joy and Positive Reciprocity. That's something I wrote on mimetic theory. So some are definitely prone to more negative forms of reciprocity, things like envy or peer pressure. And I think it's because of their way of relating to different kinds of models. And at the very same time, there are some people who are less prone to negative forms of reciprocity or negative forms of imitation than others. And this is not because they don't have a model, but because they have a model more significant than the model who posits the negative or acquisitive mimesis. What is really interesting if you look at how desire functions is this very bizarre fact, which is that desire appears to be triggered and reinforced by prohibition. You can see this incredibly clearly in little kids, like if you say to your kid, don't open the cupboard, they immediately want to open the cupboard. It's just, it seems like the don't, the negative, the negation somehow produces a really strong desire to actually do that very thing. Now, this is something that psychoanalysts like Jacques Lacan actually try and, they try and explain, but their explanations for me have never really been very satisfactory. Ugulion's explanation, on the other hand, makes complete sense. He says, 
Desire appears to be triggered and reinforced by prohibition, while in reality it is mimetically consubstantial with rivalry. Actually, the point is not the prohibition, but the fact that it is consubstantial. It is bound up with rivalry. Prohibition is but the manifestation of the power of the rival who forbids the object. And even kids and parents, good relationships, kids will just, they want to challenge parents. Part of what growing up is, is figuring out which boundaries are trustworthy and which rivals are good rivals or, or just good models. Desire, in, in other words, just really needs rivalry and prohibition to be reinforced. So what is, is quite alarming for most people is that pleasure and desire can be radically dissociated. In fact, desire can become complete, completely dissociated from instincts, need, and concrete bodily gratification. Things like sexual pleasure or hunger, for example. People can desire things that are bad for them. That's basically the the short way of saying this. People can actually act against their own self-interest. And a good example of this, and quite an alarming one, is the issue of of anorexia. Um, Ugulian actually points this out, and I've actually seen this this um, in a friend specifically. Um, no man finds a skeletal woman attractive, Ugulian writes, but anorexic women don't care. They are seeking not to conquer a handsome man, but to outdo their feminine rivals in skinniness. Gerard writes, anorexic women are not interested in men at all. Not unlike these men, they compete among themselves for the sake of competition itself. And this is also, it's particularly a problem in in. Uh, the gay community with something called manorexia, which I I, I heard uh, from a gay friend of mine. He he pointed out that this is actually a really uh, big issue in in the gay community, and I think it it stems again from this rivalry. What Ugulian points out is that desire actually often fails where it succeeds. So this issue of uh, people are prohibited from something and then they get it, and in that moment desire seems to fail. It it disappears as soon as it possesses the object that is coveted. René Girard explains, the disappointment is entirely metaphysical. The subject discovers that possession of the object has not changed his being. The expected metamorphosis has not taken place. The object never did have the power of initiation which he had attributed to it. So there is this triangle of desire and the object of desire seems to be the thing that the subject wants. But what's really happening a lot of the time is that the subject actually wants to be the model and acquiring the object doesn't create the necessary transformation. So the subject feels disappointed, desire sort of disappears. And I think you can see this pretty much in in a lot of uh, human experiences, going out to the shops and buying something new, getting a new toy. And it gives you a buzz for a short time. But then it that buzz dies and you suddenly are left with the the horrendous realization that you're still you. You have a new phone, but you're still you. When desire disappears, when there is no desire to imitate and no possibility of rivalry, it's very easy for depression to actually set in. What happens often with people who struggle with depression is that they struggle actually to to imitate others. They they become inanimate and and in some ways psychologically numb. So it's very clear that a good relationship 
means sharing and desire, being able to spark desire in the other person. Why is this though? I think I think this is a good question for for us to ask. Why do we we need to do this? And and Gerard writes to imitate one's lover's desire is to desire oneself thanks to the lover's desire. Isn't that amazing? So when we love someone and when they love us, we we find ourselves lovable through them. We love our neighbor as ourselves, and that there's a kind of circle of of desire that is shaped in that relationship. And what often happens in a breakup, and why breakups lead so quickly to very very negative spirals of depression, is perfectly explainable. Is that there is a loss of that sense that one is lovable. That is also something that happens when someone when uh, someone is grieving. That someone has died. Someone who loves you has has passed away, and you feel like that aspect of yourself, the the way, the unique way that that person loved you, is now no longer available to you. And a lot of sort of working through a grieving process is realizing how lovable you are, even without that person. I think it basically uh, is is quite unique in Christianity that that God is represented as love most most definitively in in the book of of one John. God is love. What does that mean? It means that we are endlessly loved, and I think to see ourselves through that light is to to have a a much a kind of a transformed view of reality. Um, at the same time, so so depression is is something that sense, sets in really quickly when desire is lost or removed from us, a a shared desire, and often de- addiction is connected to depression. Usually, addiction functions as a kind of fake of desire. It's a lack because all desire is rooted in lack. We we feel that we're missing something, and that's actually what what models or, or mediators or rivals create is a sense that we're missing something. We're we're losing out and addiction actually creates that sense of lack when there is no other source of lack and no other rival or model or mediator that is worth imitating addiction actually creates the semblance of a self out of a non-existent and depressed self so ugulian points out that drug addiction is often a substitute for a substitute for a rite of passage in a culture that doesn't have any taboos especially i think around uh, sex because everything is permissible, desire can't function properly. It seems that desire needs resistance to be able to function, Pro- not just po- prohibitions, but, but difficulties. It is really impossible to have a perpetual honeymoon and keep the relationship good. There needs to be the resistance of being able to have a job and working in different places and having to find time for each other, if, especially if you're in a romantic relationship. Desire needs resistance to function. So with that all in mind, I want to just explain three basic types of individual rapport, as Ugulian calls it. So the way that we relate to it, the, the rapport that we have with others. The, the first is that the other is a model. This exists when there is learning or friendship or, or the peaceful imitation of another. There is suggestion here. Rather, it's persuasion rather than force. Then there is the second type of individual rapport is the other is the rival. The shared desire that was once unified or 
well, is remains unified, but it created a kind of harmonious unity, that has led to conflict or tension. There's a forgetting of the mimetic nature of desire. So we forget that we share desires and we create the sense that we are the originators of our desires. And that then gets exacerbated and extended and it becomes the third kind of interdividual rapport, which is where the other becomes an obstacle. This is the most intense form of rivalry. The belief that the other should be replaced or done away with because he or she is in the way This is where metaphysical desire is most pronounced. And usually, by the way, in terms of what what Ugulian points out in terms of, say, marriage counseling, for instance, is that rivalry is something that couples can actually get past. They can actually learn to not have a rivalrous relationship. He also even says that when couples have an obstacle relationship with each other, they can actually get over that. It's really desperate the relationship is in a really desperate state when when they get past the obstacle stage into a stage of losing that shared desire where they want nothing to do with each other. That is where mimetic desire is broken and that's where actually you're you're dealing with two people who, who have very little or nothing to do with each other. And basically a kind of decision has to be made by both to work towards some sort of remedy but that is that's that's tough going and still doable but it's worth just noticing that these different stages of relationship are part of either part of every relationship or potentially part of it so obviously the negative stuff rivalry and and where the the other is an obstacle those are things that don't have to happen uh for for in and in fact shouldn't happen so if you by the way those of you who are listening to this if you are in a relationship where there is rivalry uh where the other is an obstacle it's really a great idea to take a step back and have a very serious look at why uh what is the shared desire that is causing conflict whose egos are getting in the way is there a way that ego can be laid down to to remedy things what usually happens is people believe that difference is the thing that produces rivalry. It's, it's uh, irreconcilable differences is usually cited as a, a reason for divorce. But the reality is that rivalry produces difference. This difference often turns the model into an object. And that's really profound to, to notice. Our enemies are usually incredibly two-dimensional to us. We are infinite. We have this infinite perspective and we see all the nuances and the, the, the subtleties of our own perspectives. But our enemies become very flat. So what happens in, in this sort of conflict or rivalrous si- situation is that the humanity, the complexity of the model or rival is easily overlooked. And I think the love-hate relationship is the clearest case of this desire or rivalry. When we are blind to mimetic rivalry, we fail to see the part that we are actually playing in fostering conflict. The other is not the only one to blame. We are also part of the problem. And this is why Ugulian points out that the opposite of madness is not mental health. The opposite of madness is wisdom. It's the ability to take ownership of your own desires, the way that you are part of a network of desires. Wisdom means knowing how to transcend acquisitive mimesis or metaphysical desire. It it means knowing how to let the other be rather than wanting to see the other 
as a rival or an obstacle. It's a rejection in a way of metaphysical desire. Wisdom is becoming aware of our mimetic desires and then living in a way that that we're not just after things that are in limited supply like a car or a house or or space or things that are in limited supply. Rather, wisdom helps us to transcend that, to, to imitate desires for things that are endlessly shareable. There is enough love to go around. There is enough generosity to go around. And I think that is the major lesson of mimetic psychology, that there are ways to imitate the desires of others that don't lead to conflict and rivalry. Thank you so much again for listening to this. This uh, stuff is so, so complex and brilliant and complicated, but um, I can't cover everything. So if you want to look a little bit more at mimetic psychology, I would highly recommend that you get J.M. Ugulian's book, The Mimetic Brain. He has written many other things, but I, I found The Mimetic Brain the clearest overview and explanation for how mimetic psychology works. We're going to start in the next episode to, to get into the, the theological dimension of mimetic theory, how mimetic theory illuminates theology and how theology illuminates mimetic theory. I hope you join me for that one. Cheers for now.